Well, good morning. Wow, that was weak. Good morning. That was better. We're going to be spending our time this morning in Colossians chapter 1, if you want to start heading there in your Bibles. If you're just joining us, we recently finished a study in the book of Acts, uh, which is about the, the spread of the Word of God to, to the ends of the earth. And so following that, I thought it would be a, a good thing to look at what happens after the gospel is spread, namely discipleship or the maturing of those believers to whom the gospel had spread. So the first week we looked at, at where a heart for discipleship comes from. We saw that, that ultimately a heart for discipleship comes from being a disciple of Christ and love of others. And then if all of that is true, then, then finally the heart of discipleship comes ultimately from worship. And then last week, if you'll remember, uh, we saw if that's where the heart of discipleship comes from, we looked at the more practical aspects, if you will. We answered, what is discipleship? Who do we disciple? And how do we disciple them? Which leads us this morning, our last lesson on this little short jaunt into discipleship, which is the cost of discipleship. But before we get started, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I, uh, I struggle to find the words to explain or, or say to you what a blessing it is to, to feel your spirit wash over your body while we worship. It's such an amazing gift, Father, that you would unite us together in ways that we're not capable of, that you would draw us to yourself and unite us to yourself despite our rebellion. So, Father, it is again that I ask that you continue to do that, that you would draw us to yourself in your word, that you would illuminate it for us, that you would open up your, your, your grace and your mercy and your call in our lives to us as we look in your word. And, Father, I know that all of this is available to us uh, the spirit that you have given us and the ability that we have to draw near to you through, through word and worship is, is only because of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so everything I ask, I ask in his name. Amen. How good of a secret keeper are you? Now, I know if I were to pull this room, everybody would be like, I'm a, secret, I'm a good secret keeper, 100%, but... Let's be real, this is church, so that ain't it. There's something less than 100% of good secret keepers. It's the nature of a church. So what kind of secret keeper are you? I think there's different genres of secret keepers. Uh, for example, on the one hand, you have, I call these people the bank vaults. They're the people who are so afraid of gossiping, they will tell you nothing about anybody. You ask them the name of your wife, and they will not tell you her name. They're afraid of gossiping. They go nowhere, they talk to nobody, they spend all day, long, all day long alone at home in the dark, staring at the wall. Now, on the other hand, you have some people that I would call the eluders. These are the, these are the folks that, that sound like this. Well, I don't want to gossip, so let me just say pray for Sally. You know, her and Harold are having a tough time. These people love it when someone asks them, uh, like, like, what's going on with someone else? Because they get to say, I can't say. They know is what they're saying. I just can't say. 
Right next to the looters, you have a, a slightly different group, which I would call the, I call them the meetingers. Uh, they're the people that, that constantly know everything because they, they meet with everybody all the time every day. You ask them, hey, how's it going? What are you doing? And, and they can't wait to tell you who they've met with that week and why they know everything that's going on. Kind of reminds me of a basketball game in here with all the elbows flying around. Okay. Maybe there's another one last group. I would say this is like me. Maybe you're like me. I call them the forgetters. Uh, I'm a great secret keeper because every night when I go to sleep, somebody sneaks into my room and does that little flashy thing to me from Men in Black, and I just forget everything that happened before. And so if somebody comes up and they say, hey, Grant, I just wanted you to know, do you, do you know what's going on with these people? Uh, I, or they say, I know you know what's going on with these people because I know you met with them last week, and I'll say I did. Uh, can you remind me? That's not a virtue. It backfires really bad on, like, anniversaries and wives' birthdays and stuff. So, did you know God is a great secret keeper? He kept a secret for about 6,000 years. That's what our passage is built around this morning, if you found your way to Colossians chapter 1. I want to show you where we're going real quick. I want to show you what I'm talking about. Look at Colossians chapter 1, verse 26 where Paul says that his ministry is to make known the mystery that was hidden for ages. That's the first thing we're going to look at. We're going to look at the mystery concealed. But then look at the next verse, verse 27, where Paul says that God made known the riches of the glory of this mystery. So it was concealed, but God made it known. So second, we'll look at this mystery revealed. And then lastly, drop down to chapter 2, verse 2, where Paul says he wants us to know the fullness of God's mystery. So the mystery was concealed, then it was revealed, and now it's being fulfilled. That's where we're going. The mystery concealed, the mystery revealed, and the mystery fulfilled. Jump back to Colossians chapter 1, verse 24, and we're going to begin with the mystery concealed. Paul says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings, for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. Now, remember, Paul would have failed 8th grade English bad. I know this is a confusing thing to say, so just keep that, or confusing to read. Just remember, Paul would have failed bad. So one of the things that we can do to understand what Paul is saying is we can remove all of his interjectory phrases and just whittle this down to the core of what he was saying. For example, if we trim verses 24 to 26 down to its guts, we get this. Now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake. That's not it. You guys are going to have to listen to me. Now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake to make the word of God fully known. That's basically what Paul is saying. Everything else is added around that to expand on it and explain it. He's saying, I rejoice in my suffering for your sake to make the word of God fully known. He expands then on his suffering. He explains who you is or your and, and, and then he, he, he explains what it means to be fully known. That's what we're looking at. 
But what I want to start with before we get into the, to the cost of discipleship is this. We need to understand Paul's mindset because it may not be ours. Because what Paul is saying to the Colossians is that his conversion, he's saying that his salvation has bound him to them. And what's interesting about that is Paul has never met a single Colossian in his life. The church in Colossae was started by Epaphras, who was saved by Paul in Ephesus. And then Epaphras went back to Colossae and saved them. So Paul is, is talking about being bound to people that he has never met. Here's what I want you to understand. Most of us have an individualistic perspective of salvation. Meaning we believe that God's plan for my life is primarily about me. In other words, we believe the plan of God for my life is that I would be converted. And then once I'm converted, God's primary plan would be that I work on growing myself up. His primary plan for my life would be that I work on, on maturing and cleaning myself up for the rest of my life. Most of us view that as God's primary plan for our life. Can you see how that's not how Paul sees it? Paul says that the purpose of his conversion was in large part to carry the message that converted him to others. Now, don't get me wrong. Growing and maturing in Christ is a very good thing, and it is a large part of your Christian walk. It's not wrong to think that, that your life as a new creation is to grow in, in our maturity and in Christ. I mean, Paul talked about straining and striving and, and running. To, uh, he even talked about beating his body to, to grow himself in Christ, but it doesn't stop there. Think about a bus driver who got, who got a brand new school bus. And this bus driver took this bus and he cleaned it all the time perfectly. He worked on it. He even made this bus better than it was when he got it. But now imagine that that bus was never used to transport students anywhere. The cleanest, safest, best running bus in the nation never took a single student any to or fro school or home. <clears throat> what will we say about that bus? That it had not fulfilled its calling. And, 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 and the same can be true for us. We can grow and be more and more sanctified. We can even become incredibly mature Christians. But if we're never used as an instrument to transport people from one place to another in their spiritual walk, we have missed our calling. We have not fulfilled our purpose. Before we move forward any further, we must see what Paul is expressing, even in between the lines of this passage, that our salvation does not end with us. It only begins. Because if we think our salvation ends with us, the rest of what Paul has to say here will mean nothing. Because what Paul is about to explain is that in large part, the purpose of our salvation is to deliver the gospel to others at great cost to ourselves. Here's an example. Look right back at the beginning in verse 24. Paul says, now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake and in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. Now, what does Paul mean when he says that he is filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? Does that mean Christ missed something that, that he failed at something? Is, is he lacking something? Well, of course, the answer is no. 
and yes. And before you get out your pitchforks and start lighting torches, what Paul is saying is this. The most profound thing about our Savior is that He suffered. That was a cosmic violation of the way it should have gone. The Creator of the universe not only veiled His glory, but stepped out of the throne room of heaven and lived like you and me. Why are you not on the floor? That's the most profound thing about our Savior. That He would suffer and die in order to bring us peace with God. To make a path for us back into God's presence. So absolutely, in one sense, there is nothing lacking in what Christ did to atone for our sin, to pay for our sin, to bring us back into relationship with Christ. There is nothing is lacking there. As, as Christ said on the cross, it is finished. So then what does Paul mean? We get a few hints in other places in Scripture. Listen to what Paul said just a few pages to your left, if you want to choose. It might be one or two. In Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 29. Paul is talking about a guy named Epaphras. I already mentioned him. And, and what Epaphras did was he delivered a gift to Paul who was in Rome in, in prison. This gift was from the church in Philippi. And Paul said in Philippians chapter 2, verse 29, he said, So receive him, that's Epaphras, in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. So what was lacking in the Philippian service to Paul, excuse me, um, um, was the effort and, and the suffering in regard to the delivery. Not the gift. Philippians had given the gift, but then Epaphras delivered that gift. He filled up what they were lacking in the delivery of it on behalf of the church. I want to put that together with another passage that Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He begins in verse 7. But we have this treasure, that's the gospel he's talking about, in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Christ so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So Paul is saying something very similar back in Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. What he's saying is, is Jesus still intends for those who would believe to see his sacrificial nature through us. You may have heard the story of a missionary in India who would go in between all the villages barefoot. His name was uh, Sundar, and he preached the gospel. And the story goes that, that he had traveled a, a long way one day, and he came to this village, village and tried to preach them the gospel, but they rejected him and, and, and sent him out. And he was too tired to go any further, so he went outside the village and fell asleep under a tree. While he was asleep, though, the village came out to take another look at him. So when he wakes up, the whole village is standing around him. Yikes. Okay? But the, but the leader of the, of the village steps forward and he says, you know, we came out here to take another look at you, but, but we noticed how blistered and bloody your feet are. 
And, and when they saw that, what he says is that they realized that what this man was trying to tell them must have been important if he was willing to suffer that much for them. Now this, this leader explained, we want to hear what it is that, that you're willing to suffer that much to, to tell us. It added weight to what he was going to say. These villagers received a glimpse of Jesus when this evangelist filled up the afflictions of Jesus with his blisters, blistered feet. Jesus' feet could not bleed anymore to bring the gospel to this village. This man's feet could. So what Paul is saying back in Colossians is that Jesus not only wants people to hear about his, his sacrifice for them, but he still wants them to witness a piece of it through us. And so we fill up what Christ would do for these people in delivering the gospel, the sacrifice of delivering that message. He wants people to get a glimpse of him through us when we lay down our comfort and our security, even our lives, in order to deliver the gospel to them. So what is lacking in Christ's affliction is the suffering to deliver the gospel. The cost of discipleship begins with the cost of making disciples. Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 1, beginning in verse 8, he said, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. And later in, in chapter 3, in verse 12, Paul said, indeed, all who desire, let this verse sink in, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. Brothers and sisters, Jesus could not be clearer when he said, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. We must begin, if we're going to follow in the footsteps of our Savior, by taking up our own cross. We must follow our Lord with, with sleepless nights filled with prayer. We must take up his mission of sacrificing ourselves for the sake of others. And we don't need to make this too complicated. Spend, take a Friday night and go with Robbie out onto Central and help the, help the, help, help the homeless people that, that she serves. Give up, give up a Friday night for that. It, it might be just staying up late to talk to someone and, and counsel them. Let me give you one of the simplest examples of a sacrifice that you can create, that, can, 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 that you can do, that, that can create the most profound ripples through your workplace. Take time off of work to go on vacation instead of vacation on the weekends. And explain to your coworkers that you would rather miss work and go to church instead of go to church instead of, instead of miss church and go to work. Look at the shock in their face when you say something like that. It's a little sacrifice that you can make. It doesn't have to start with spears and villagers and eating bugs. It can start simple. Think about it this way. If the effectiveness of the delivery of the gospel is directly related to how much of our Savior others see in us, 
when we deliver it, what does that say about the apathy toward the gospel in our culture? If, our, if the effectiveness of the delivery of the gospel is directly related to how much of our, our Savior's suffering others see in us when we deliver it, what does that say about the apathy toward the gospel in our culture? It says that our culture is seeing a gospel that costs nothing. It says our culture is seeing a gospel that's a good add-on to everything else that's wonderful in your life. This is the mystery that was concealed. The cost of discipleship, it begins simply by displaying the, the sacrificial nature of our Savior when we explain this, this mystery. But what was that mystery? Look at the mystery revealed beginning in verse 27. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So part of discipleship is the suffering and the affliction that comes from, from, from delivering the message to new disciples. But what's the big mystery? Why is Paul saying that Christ was such a big mystery? Let me, ex let me explain this to you. Mankind was created to worship. Simply put, if you are in the human category, you want to worship something. You seek to worship something. There is no such thing as a human that doesn't worship. The problem that everyone runs into is that they realize at some point in their life that what they're worshiping is flawed. It's unfulfilled. It's broken. It's weak. It doesn't, doesn't meet that, that desire they have to worship something. The, the stock market crashes and, and what they worship is just dashed. They get fired from their job and what they worship falls apart. Their, their, their sports hero opens his mouth and gets political and they realize he can jump real high, but he's not the sharpest knife in the drawer. They realize that what they worship is not what it should be. What does that have to do with the mystery of Christ? Well, all the way back in Genesis, God told Abraham, I am going to do two things. I'm going to create a people out of all nations, and I'm going to live in the midst of those people and be with them. And then Moses said, or then he told Moses to build this, this tabernacle for God to live in. Did you get the mystery? You see the big question mark? How is God going to live in the midst of a people that are scattered all over the world if he lives in a building? Are we just going to ship that building around like an art you know, display thing? Like it spends some time in the U.S. and then it goes to Africa and then it goes to Europe so God can live in the midst of his people? Is that what he's going to do? How can God be in the midst of his people when his people are all around the globe? It's a mystery until Christ comes. After Jesus lived, died, and, and, and resurrected, he sent the Holy Spirit to fulfill what? That promise. The promise that God would live in the midst of his people all over the world. So what Paul is saying is that the mystery revealed is how God would be glorified in the midst of his people, even if they're scattered everywhere. It's Christ in you. The revealed mystery is that you have become the temple and the dwelling place of the God of heaven and earth. That is amazing. 
the riches of God's glory are no longer seen in a building. They're seen in you, in us. And that's not just glorious, it's riches of glory. I want you, let me tell you how this, let me show you how this works itself out in real time. It's kind of funny. If you'll remember back in Acts chapter 10, God told Peter to go talk to Cornelius. Now, Cornelius was a God-fearer, which means he believed in God, he feared God, but he wasn't circumcised. He was a Gentile. He's a grown man. He's like, I ain't doing that. And so, 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 so Peter goes to Cornelius, and Cornelius believes, right? And Peter's like, oops, I just saved a Gentile. And so then, then fast forward in Acts chapter 15, the church gets together and has a meeting to decide whether or not God's allowed to save Gentiles. It's like the memo went out to all the disciples and said, meeting, 5 o'clock in the temple, to decide whether God's allowed to save Gentiles. And Peter's like, he just did. And then later, Paul takes that gospel and it starts spreading like fire throughout all the world, through all the Gentiles. And so what we get, what we get to see here is, is the disciples trying to wrap their minds around, try to wrap their arms around what it means that God is going to live in everyone, not just the Jews how he's going to be worshipped in the midst of his people around the world. Here's what we still miss the weight of. Here's what we still don't understand. Here's what it is still so difficult to grasp is it is not a drag. It's not an obligation. It's not this horrible thing. It's like we got to do the laundry, we got to wash the dog, and I got to worship God. It's not like that. Paul says that what you are carrying around with you is laden with glory, it's overflowing. So listen, don't underestimate how bad people want to worship something. It's, they're desperate for it. If there's someone you know that isn't a believer, I can promise you one thing. The secret they do not tell you is that their idols have failed. And they are desperate for something to worship. They spent countless hours and dollars propping them up, but deep down they know their idol is worthless. But you have been entrusted with the news that there is someone worth worshiping. You get to explain how great are the riches of the glory that, the, that God lives in you through Christ. Look, it's not a coincidence that what Paul is writing at the end of Colossians 1 follows what he wrote in the middle of Colossians 1. Look what he says in verse 15. This is who's living in you. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the church, the church. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. In him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, he has now reconciled you through the body of his death. That's who we get to tell others about. That's who's living inside you. 
If I had one wish, it would be to impress upon every heart in this room the riches of the glory of the message that we carry around with us every single day. The riches of the glory that the broken relationship we had with the one whom we were created to worship and the one who is worth worshiping has been reconciled by Jesus Christ. And now, through Christ, the one who is worth worshiping lives in you so you can worship Him by just living. By just living your life. If we could lay hold of the riches of that glory of Christ in us, then we could easily join Paul in rejoicing in our suffering to bring that message to others. It'd be a fuel that drove our lives. The mystery that was concealed has now been revealed. The God you were created to worship, the God who is worth worshiping, lives in you through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But Paul doesn't stop there. Even though that mystery has been revealed, and even though he, uh, we might deliver that message at great cost to ourselves, as rich as that glory is, our mission to deliver this message to his people is not yet fulfilled. Look at verse 29. Paul says, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of the full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Back at the beginning of verse 29, Paul says, For this. What is this? Well, he says it in verse 28. Him we proclaim and warn, and we teach everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this, for the presenting of everyone mature in Christ, Paul says, he toils. So while Paul speaks of suffering to bring the gospel to people for salvation, now he speaks of toiling and struggling to continue with them on their road to maturity in Christ. And what is it that he toils and struggles to do? Proclaiming, warning, and teaching. Now, if you're not a Greek scholar, that word toil is interesting. Because in the Greek, it means toil. It's pretty simple. The question I have for us is, can you remember the last time you toiled at anything? Now, I know there's some mothers in here and you're like, yeah, two hours ago. I toiled to get these animals in the car for church. How about the rest of you? When was the last time you labored and slogged and sweated at something until you had nothing left? Perhaps there are some of you here. But now for the hard questions, because I love you. I know there's plenty of you here who slog every day at work, who toil for, for, for running or exercise or different sports and activities. I, I know there are many of us here who are like that. When was the last time you toiled at discipling someone until you had nothing left? When was the last time you spent every last drop of energy you had and then even more at discipling someone? When was the last time you collapsed into bed because you spent everything you had 
physical, mental energy on proclaiming and warning and teaching another brother or sister in order to present them mature in Christ. I've told you this before, but one of the greatest burdens that I feel as a pastor is is what I think may be coming when we get to heaven. I call it uh, a sheep presentation, presentation day. And I, I believe that, when, that, that as a pastor, when we get to heaven, one of the things I'm going to have to do is I'm going to have to present my flock to Christ. And He's going to check your fur and your teeth and your musculature and all that kind of stuff. Relax, I'm talking spiritually speaking. But that, that He is going to want to know and see my work in growing you in Christ. I feel a great burden for that, but I want to ask you, have you ever thought about what happens next when I step out of the way and the great shepherd asks you, what have you done to grow the sheep in this flock? Paul speaks of toiling and struggling that we might present each other or everyone mature in Christ. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul explains that what's happening to you right now is you are being equipped for the work of the ministry. And what he says right after that, the work of the ministry is that you're being equipped for right now is to speak the truth in love to each other until the body builds itself up in love. Listen, take a, take a second and look around you. Do you remember who's sitting behind you? Do you know who's sitting in front of you? The Bible says that we collectively are responsible for the spiritual maturity of the brothers and sisters in this room. For each other. But I don't know how to do that. I don't know how to grow someone in Christ. You might say, well, Paul makes it easy. He says we're called to toil and struggle. The the, the word there for struggle in the Greek is agonizomai. Agonize. He says we're to agonize in proclaiming and warning and teaching each other what? Look at the second half of verse 2 in Colossians 2. To reach all the riches of the full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. We're still helping each other grasp this truth of the mystery of Christ in us. We don't get it yet. None of us do. Sometimes it looks like proclaiming. That's what we're experiencing here. I don't need you to respond to me. Sometimes we just talk to each other about who Christ is in us. That may cost you some sleep or some time or, or even some face you know, doing people. Sometimes it looks like warning. You see, we've become so used to God's economy of grace in our lives that His power and His holiness, they seem to be of lessening consequence. Let me bring this a little closer to home. I'm guessing you're the same way as me, and that means I'm, I'm assuming that this morning, the first thing you thought when you woke up wasn't, thank you God for not killing me. That means we, we have, have lost sight of His holiness. There are men and women who, who are far holier than us that have just caught a glimpse of God and they were terrified that He would destroy them. So, so there's this pervasive idea that's being thrown at us every day by, by mainstream Christianity that Jesus is my homeboy. Which means each one of us still needs each other to remind us who is living inside of us. We need to be reminded, brother, sister, don't, be, don't do that. Don't think that. Do you remember who's living in you? It'll cost you to warn others. 
It'll be uncomfortable. You'll probably get some defensiveness in return. Sometimes Paul says it looks like teaching. Just explaining something to someone that they don't know about Christ in them. And when does Paul say we stop paying that cost? When do we stop toiling and struggling for each other? He says, verse 2, when we reach the full assurance of understanding and knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. So raise your hand if you've reached the full assurance of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? It means we've got a lot of work to do. A lot of toiling and striving to do. I mean, maybe you do have it nailed, and if you did, you wouldn't have raised your hand anyway because that would have been bragging, but I don't. I could keep every single one of you busy for the rest of your lives, growing in me and what I'm lacking in the full assurance of Jesus Christ living in me. Whether it's just me or, or you also have some room for maturity, it's going to cost us to do this. There's going to be a price to pay. It's going to cost us time. It's going to cost us sleep. It's going to cost us pride. It's going to cost us patience. It's going to cost you rest. It's going to cost you focus. It might even just cost money. There is a cost, the mystery being fulfilled in our lives. But let me tell you the most important part to wrap this up. If you hear me say anything today, hear me say this. It is so worth it. It is so worth it to do this with each other. The Christian life is not a purpose-driven life. That's garbage. The Christian life is a reward-driven life. Would you like to experience joy like you have never experienced before in your life? Sacrifice a little bit. Just suffer a little bit to bring the gospel of salvation to, to someone and watch the tears well up in their eyes as you know the Holy Spirit is washing over them. You will feel joy like you don't know. Would you like, as Paul would say, to be knit together in love to another brother or sister like, like you've never been with someone else? Pay the price to wade into another brother or sister's life with your weaknesses laid bare. And proclaim God's mercy and grace to each other as you persevere together, struggling and toiling to encourage and build each other up. Paul could not be clearer. Nothing less than more of our Savior Himself lies at the end of this road of discipling each other. What a wonderful thing this is. If we would be His body, if we would fulfill our mandate to, to build each other up in Him through the costly act of discipleship, then we must start by be, being willing to say to each other, and I'll be the first to say, I need help. I need your help. I can't grow myself. I need, I need to ask you humbly to pay the price to help, you, to help me grow. And if you would be willing to do this, if we would be willing to do this, I can promise you, I can promise you that without a doubt, we will join people like the great missionary David Livingston, who said in the end, after he sacrificed everything, I never made a sacrifice. It was all worth it. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, I pray that you would sink deep into our hearts the glory, the riches of the glory of the mystery of Christ living in us. And I pray, Lord, that through that revelation, as you grow that understanding in our hearts, it would drive us, force us even, to want to pay the price, to give the cost, to take up our own crosses and, and love each other and love others. That we would be so willing to pay the cost of, of, of growing each other up because we know that the Savior that you gave us is, is at the end of that road. Father, make us more like our Savior. Make us more like Christ. Do the work that we cannot do in our hearts. Knit us together in love. And bring us closer to the full assurance of the knowledge of, of our Savior. And it's in his name that I pray. Amen.